Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. This is God's word. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarii. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him. In what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we come now in your presence to hear your word explained, we would ask that you would be the preacher, that it would be your voice that we hear, that it would be your spirit that would be present, and that it would be you who would open up the ears and the hearts of your people to behold the wonderful things that you have before us in your word. We know that man does not live by bread alone. Bread cannot satisfy. It is only the manna that comes down from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. It is only the word of truth that truly our souls must feed on to know the satisfaction that we hunger for. Lord, today in this room, we need to know the satisfaction of Jesus. And we need to see the call that Jesus places upon our life as his followers to render unto you the things that are yours. And so we would ask that in both challenge to follow Jesus in his commands and comfort to rest in the gospel promises would both be present to us in this hour and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey everything that you say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We are often told that love is the tie that binds. You, you know that old hymn, don't you? Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Undoubtedly, so many of you have sung that hymn over the course of your life. You could probably go into verses 2 and 3 with no prompting whatsoever. It's certainly true that love binds, isn't it? You think of the spouse that's sitting next to you or your father or your mother or your children or a dear friend. The different qualities of love that God gives us and the different types of unity that those loves bring into our lives. Surely, blessed is the tie of love that binds. But, but love is not the only tie that binds. We can't forget that hate also binds. Hate often binds people together in a kind of strength that could only be rivaled by love. If you don't believe that hate binds together, just look at Facebook or, or, or media or listen to the radio. It seems as if when we have a common enemy, it creates unparalleled kind of unity. The kind of unity that, in fact, brings together so disparate groups, such diverse types of people that would never be caught dead with one another except for the fact that they're together against their enemy. It's actually what we have here in this passage. It's what we have with these unlikely bedfellows known as the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, you don't see that here in Luke chapter 20, but you would see it in the parallel retelling of this story in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, we're told that the group that sends out the spies who, who pretend to be sincere, to catch Jesus here in this trap, are actually two very different groups of people. The Pharisees on the one hand, and the Herodians on the other. Well, how different really are they? Well, well this different. The Pharisees were the right-wing conservatives of the day. They were the Jewish nationalists who anticipated and longed for the Messianic kingdom, and they were looking for the overthrow of the Roman Empire. The Herodians, whom they've partnered with to catch Jesus, were the left-wing liberals. They accommodated to the Romans and served the syncretistic values of the Roman Empire and longed to see Rome continue to grow in its power and expansiveness. But both groups hated Jesus. Both groups hated Jesus. They had tried in their own right to capture him in a fit of words, had all the way back to Luke chapter 5 been frustrated when he said to the paralytic who laid on the mat, man, your sins are forgiven. Both of these groups have seen Jesus as a threat. Threat differently, but a threat. To, to the Pharisees, he was a threat to their religious authority and their aspirations, the religious platform that they held. To the Herodians, he was a political threat. He was a threat to their alliances and the future of what they had longed for with regards to the Roman Empire. Both of these groups needed Jesus to die 
in order for them to breathe easy again. But getting Jesus dead had proved difficult. Over and over throughout the book of Luke, every time that the crowd gets excited about something that Jesus says and the religious leaders seek to go after him, we're told something strange like Jesus passed through the crowd and they were unable to grab him. And they sought to lay their hands on him, but Jesus moved out. Or they feared the people, as we just read a second ago. They would have, with murderous intent, done away with Jesus right now, but this doesn't seem like the time. And so in this passage, the right and the left crossed the aisle and decided, you know what, we can't agree on politics, we can't agree on economics, we can't agree on values, we can't agree on the direction of the country or whether the country even needs a direction, but what we can agree on is Jesus is our enemy. And what we need is to align our forces together around an issue that we don't even agree about, taxes. And use our difference as a wedge to be able to put him on what might be called the horns of the dilemma. Between the the so-called rock and a hard place. The darned if you do, the darned if you don't kind of situation. That's where Jesus is right here in the midst of this trap that has been cleverly laid for him by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, now let's keep in mind, as we look at this cleverly laid path, that that Jesus has already outsmarted them. Uh, Just in the previous context, they came to Jesus with a question about his authority, calling him outright. Who gives you the authority to say these things and to do these things? It It was a kind of full frontal attack. Uh, it, was a, it was a clear away, no slipperiness, just I want to know by what authority you're doing these things. And you remember what Jesus did. Well, he says, well, let me ask you a question first. Was, was John the Baptist's baptism from heaven or was it from man? And now, what did Jesus do when he did that? Well, he did exactly what they're doing here. He put them on the horns of a dilemma. He put them between the rock and the hard place. He put them in the darned if you do, darned if you don't camp. If we say this, that John's baptism is from heaven, then he will say, then why did you not believe him and follow him? And if we say that he didn't come from heaven and it's from man, then the crowd who believes he's from God will will overcome us. And so we'll just say, we don't have the foggiest idea where the authority of John's baptism came from. Now, it seems to me, in the context of the passage, that this group who just received this word from Jesus took a page out of Jesus' book and came back to him. That is, the Herodians and the Pharisees put their heads together and they said, you know, he did that little question thing. And maybe we've been going at this wrong. We've been going at it. Who gives you the authority to do these things? A full frontal attack. What we really need is to flank him from the rear. What we're going to have to do is come up behind him and use his own tactics against him. We're going to to do it in a way that he will in no way spot and there's no way he'll be able to tip through the landmine that we're going to lay for him. In fact, we're going to start with deception. 
We're going to start with deception. Look, the text says that they were spies. They were spies. And notice their spirit, who pretended to be sincere. And we have to believe that Jesus wouldn't have recognized these faces thus far. You know, we can't send the same two people who went up earlier and asked him about the authority. You know, well, we've got to send somebody new now. Somebody he's not seen. Somebody who's been kind of waiting in the wings. Someone he may not have recognized. We've got to dress them up like the common folk. You can't look like a Herodian with long robes and powerful liaisons with the Roman Empire. You can't look like a Pharisee, one with a religious air about them. He's going to, they're going to look like the common folk. They're going to ask a, a question and they're going to come with a, with a sense of earnestness. They're, they're going to look like a faithful follower, someone who really wants to know the way of truth. We've got to get at Jesus through deception. We've tried to come at him like we are, but it's not working. It's got to get a little more slippery, a little more serpentine. And so we, we use this deception and, we, and then we, we start out with flattery. It's a, great, it's a great way of getting along this path. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. Oh, how slippery are the words of the flatterer. You can hear them, those of you who know Pilgrim's Progress so well and John Bunyan's great classic, The Flatterer Who Comes and Tantalizes the Ears with Things That We Want to Hear That Are Unlikely Coming from Places That Are Not Genuine or Sincere from the Heart of Which They Come. It's a killing kind of kindness, isn't it? It's a honeyed word that is meant for harm. It's exactly what Kent Hughes actually says. In his commentary on this very passage, I find this observation very insightful. He says, flattery is the reverse of gossip. Uh, gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face, right? Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never, never dream of saying to their face, while flattery involves saying something to a person's face that you would never say behind their back. It's good, isn't it? really good. They had just put their heads together and condemning Jesus for the purpose of, of attacking him and then they came forward in flattery and kindness. Oh yeah, they had been saying something really different behind Jesus' back, but they came forward with a smile on their face. That's exactly what we have here. And then from the deception to the flattery to the trick question, Jesus knew that there would be a false kindness. And from that false kindness, there would come a noose from which he could put his head in and hang himself in one direction or another. But uh, Jesus sees what it is that they've done. And so he asked them a question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, taxes, taxes, people always argue about. It doesn't matter if it's in our century or in the middle 
ages or in the early church or long before Christ was here, people have never liked taxes and they've always been around. But it's been a particular struggle at this particular moment in history. In fact, there had been a revolt. In the first century, while Jesus was just a boy, Josephus tells us about it in his history, that it caused some bloodshed over this issue of taxation. In fact, the group known as the Zealots, which we read about in the New Testament, uh, were arisen out of that revolt as Jesus was a child and would ultimately be a, a movement and a group that would be instrumental in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. This issue of taxes was a big deal. And it, it was becoming a more heightened issue. If there was a lightning rod issue in the first century at this point, it was this one. And Jesus asked them, is it lawful? Or they asked Jesus, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now these two groups, Pharisees and the Herodians, have really different opinions about this. It's not like they were in agreement. Uh, the, the Herodians, for instance, believed it was absolutely necessary to give unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, would have sided with the giving unto God the things that are God's and don't give them to Caesar. Uh, they, had, they had set this trap in order for Jesus to s step into it. Because if he had said, yes, give unto Caesar, then the Pharisees could have easily written him off as a collaborator with Rome. But if he says, no, don't, don't give unto Caesar, then the Herodians could have brought charges for him as a rebellious insurrectionist. It was, it was instigating a coup to overthrow the party. There was nothing Jesus could do to escape from this dilemma, or so it appeared. And then we're told in verse 23 that Jesus perceived their craftiness. I love that sentence. It said another way, Jesus saw through the deceptions, he saw through the flattery, he saw through what looked like a sincere inquirer of truth asking a question about being faithful. And what he saw was the diabolical intentions underneath. Now why do I call them diabolical? Well, as I read this passage this week, I couldn't help but be reminded of the familiar words that described the evil one in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember those words? Now the serpent was more... Crafty, yeah, that's right, than any other beast in the field that the Lord had made. Oh, yes, right. Right, these, these inquirers have been walking in the path of their master, the serpent. There was a, there was a hiss to their question. There was something slithering about their deceptions. Jesus had already told us in John chapter 8 that the Pharisees believed that they were sons of Abraham. Jesus says, you're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. He is your father. You are carrying out his desires. That's what Jesus said of them in John chapter 8. And Luke is telling us here in Luke chapter 20, it's important that we see this is not a, just a merely religious or political matter. This interchange is not about a grab bag for authority in one area or another. This is a cosmic spiritual battle that is taking place. 
This is a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is the battle that is the primordial battle that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the conflict of all conflicts. Jesus, as he begins to make his strides towards the crucifixion, as he comes to the end of his mission, Jesus has the serpent crouching close in upon him and the tensions are rising to a fever pitch. Jesus sees this wisely and so he asks for a denarii. Now a denarii, of course, is just a small silver coin. It wouldn't look like much to, to you or me if we were to see it. It amounted to what was essentially a day of wage for the common laborer. On the side of the coin, there was the picture of Caesar himself. And there was this inscription. It read this. Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Hmm. It was a common currency in the day. In fact, one rarely could have gotten through life without having one of these buried somewhere or another in a, in a pocket. And so when Jesus asked for it, it was a natural thing for someone to dig and to find one and to, to reveal one. But this would have been very hard for the circumspect Jew to do. The, the Jew who was, who was seeking to be fastidious in his or her keeping of the law. Because holding the coin of the denarii with the face of Caesar upon it, with the inscription that Caesar is the divine son of Augustus, meant that you were holding something that essentially broke the second great commandment. Of having a graven image. Of someone who claimed to be divine. Oh, Jesus is smart here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, by asking for them to reveal the coin, he was in a sense exposing their own inconsistency. Since Caesar had claimed to be divine, his image was upon it, and he, he considered himself divine, this was tantamount to idolatry. Begrudgingly, I'm sure, they brought forth the coin. And then when he asked, now whose face is this? Y'all, please remind me. Please, please remind me. Whose face is this? And, and what does it claim? you know there had to be a bit of a shuffling of the feet and begrudgingly saying, well, Caesar's. Now, Jesus' point, not, not merely to shame them into this idolatrous sense of holding that first or second commitment, certainly not his primary intentions. primary intention is to say the next phrase. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. This phrase has been called the, the greatest phrase describing the relationship between the church and state. But what's so remarkable about it? What does Jesus really mean when he says those words? Well, in the first place, Jesus was clearly upholding the ancient traditions that coins with faces upon them and inscriptions upon them issued by governments and issued by kings, by Caesars, were the property of those who made them. 
If Caesar's name and his face is upon it, then by all means, if Caesar wants it, give it to Caesar. It appears as if it's his. There's no way that we could hold something back from Caesar that's his. If it's his property, please hand it over to Caesar. Straightforward enough. But in the second place, Jesus says, let me remind you of something. It's important that Caesar knows his place before God. Therefore, render to God the things that are God's. All right. How would the, the ear of the Jew heard this original instruction from Jesus? It's often missed by us in its first hearing, but they would, it would not have been lost upon them. The picture of the image and the inscription of divinity meant possessiveness. It meant ownership. Give the coin to Caesar. It's clearly Caesar's coin. But there is an image upon you. And there's an inscription written over you. And the image upon you and the inscription written over you is that you are God's. And so render what is God's to God. Said another way, give Caesar his coins and then remember that Caesar's made in the image of God. And so why don't you give Caesar to God? Why don't you give Caesar to God? He may claim to be divine. He may claim to be all-powerful. But the realization is, if you give Caesar the coins that have his name upon him, and you give Caesar to God, what that really means is that God owns the coins too. God owns the coins too. Is that everything is God's. Everything is his. He's the one who's made these things. In fact, he's doing nothing more than referencing Genesis chapter 1, isn't he? Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Oh, don't you see the logic of Jesus? The logic of Jesus is, if the coin is made in the image of Caesar, give it to, give it to Caesar. But if you are made in the image of God, then give yourself to God. Give yourself to God. And every other human being, for that matter, including Caesar. For at the end of the day, all of us are God's. We're not made in our own image. We're made in God's image. It's a masterful statement. A statement not laden with trickery, but, but, but one that is, that is coming forth with powerful truth. It's a marvelous statement. In fact, that's ex- marvel seems to be exactly the response of the people. As Jesus spoke these words, we're told that the people marveled at his answer. And then notice, they became silent. He hushed the mouths of his enemies. He he, he closed up their lips where they thought they had things to say. They thought they had charges to bring. They thought they had allegations to weigh. And Jesus closed their mouth. Do you see these deceptive and flattering inquirers came to lay a trap for Jesus, but in the end... Jesus laid a trap for them. 
Not through trickery. Through truth. He put them in a double bind. The bind that says either you will try to cling on to your religion, either you'll try to cling on to your politics, you'll try to make your life in your own image, or you'll actually give yourself away to God in whose image you are made. You see, if we actually understood what Jesus was saying here, maybe a a marveling silence would fall upon us this morning. If we were to truly apprehend what it is that Jesus is pressing in upon us, you see, Jesus is not just asking us to faithfully pay our taxes and our tithe, though He is telling us to do that. He's not even asserting that we should give some of our time to Him and a little bit of our energy. That we might serve God and we might serve country, though both of those are included. No, God is teaching us that we are all made in His image. And therefore, He possesses us. We are owned by Him. We are His. And what that means is if we hold one second of our lives from God, we're robbing from Him. If we hold one ounce of our energy from Him, we're stealing from Him. If we hold one denarii for ourselves, we're thieves. Because in fact, we are possessed, owned by God. We've never owned anything. We've never owned anything. Not even your life, the scripture teaches us, is our own. And let me tell you, if we think that we're exaggerating hyperbole by that, we've not even begun what this means to understand it. You see, Jesus and God are not asking for you to tip them. They're not asking for your extra time or your recreational income. They're asking that you lay the entirety of yourself before them with joy. Now the question is, how do we do that? And and, and to be quite honest, it it feels as if we have a a problem on our hands. I don't know about you, but I have stolen a few seconds from the Lord over the course of my life. And I have certainly wasted some money on myself rather than upon the priorities of God. In in fact, I can almost promise you I will do it again. Despite the fact that it grieves me. Despite the fact that it breaks my heart. As I look at my life and I see how committed I am to rendering my life to myself rather than to God. I'm really committed to that. In my sinful self, of rendering myself to myself rather than to God. And because of it, it's the very nature of sin and the very nature of selfishness. How do we begin to render unto God His due? Well, the realization is it's too late. If God, if we've been made in God's image in the entirety of our lives, every single ounce of who we are is to be rendered unto Him, you're already a little spent. You're more than a little spent in this room. And I can assure you in that spending... You can't get it back to offer it to Him. 
We were in a desperate place. And if this is going to happen, if any kind of satisfaction of giving God his due is going to actually take place, then God himself is going to have to bring a rendering on our behalf. That's how it's going to have to happen. God himself is going to have to bring a rendering on our behalf. Don't you see, this is what the writers of Hebrews is trying to teach us. When he says that Jesus has come in the exact imprint of the nature of God. Do you know what that word imprint means? It means image. He's come in the exact imprint of the nature of God. And yet, he has simultaneously been made like us in the image of man in every way, we're told, yet without sin. Jesus, holy God, holy man, one who is perfectly suited to give God his perfect rendering, one who is perfectly designed to give the rendering on our behalf. Only Jesus is the one that can do it. Do you see? It's not we who give Jesus his perfect due. We are not the ones who give God all it is that is required. It's Jesus who on our behalf does. And do you know how he does it? By being first rendered to Caesar. You see, in a few moments from Luke chapter 20, Jesus will be sold into the hands of Pilate. He'll be sold into the governing authorities. They'll render Jesus up, even as they described here in this passage their desire to deliver him up to the governing authorities. Isn't that what they wanted? They wanted to deliver him up to the governing authorities. Why? Because he's an insurrectionist. What did Jesus remind Pilate of? As Pilate discussed him, he, he discussed with Pilate the realization that even Pilate's power has been given from God. Pilate doesn't have any authority over Jesus, but Jesus was rendered up to Pilate. He was rendered up to the governing authority over the province of Judea. And you know what? He was condemned. You know how he was condemned? As an insurrectionist. Having a Roman execution with the banner put over him that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, in mockery fashion. But don't you see, as Jesus was rendered up to Caesar, he was simultaneously rendered up to God. And God, his verdict on Jesus is a much higher tribunal than Caesar. So much so that Caesar's execution of Jesus as an insurrectionist is trumped in God's exaltation and vindication of Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So much so that Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that this Jesus, who was faithful and obedient even unto death, even death on a cross, receives from God the name that is given above every name, the Caesar of all Caesars, the Lord of all lords, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, even Caesars, that he is Lord. Do you see, when Jesus came, his death, though from an earthly standpoint, one of condemnation and shame, as his case was taken to the highest court in the cosmos, every other verdict of Jesus was overruled. 
And Jesus was given a name that Caesar's name, son of divine Augustus, is not worthy to be compared. And he, being rendered on our behalf, gives us passport to render up ourselves to God as living sacrifices, acceptable in the sight of God for his glory and for his power. You see, how do you render yourself unto God? How do you give God what he is due? You give God what he is due by asking God to look to Jesus on your behalf. To look to Jesus on your behalf. And then as he looks to Jesus on your behalf, you too with the eyes of faith see Jesus and you joyfully render everything to God. You see, that's the life of the Christian. And it's that life and it's that longing that genuinely is lodged away in the heart of the Christian who's beheld the gospel. And that's why we can sing, blessed be the tie that binds the Christian in love and fellowship. Don't you see there is a tie that is stronger than hate? It's the tie of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the love of God poured out for you. By His grace, see the rendered Jesus to God and in Christ be rendered to Him. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask you, render us now in Christ. Render us now in Christ to yourself. Let all goods and kindreds go. Let this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abide still. He will live forever. Oh Lord, we, we ask that your grace now would lead us into repentance. That we would see the seconds that we've held back, the hours, the days, the years. That we would see the money we've held back. That we would see the homes and the cars and the spouses and the children. The everything that we've cherished more than you that we've held back. And we'd hold it now with open arms and with open hands. And we say, we render it to you, Lord. Do with me as you may. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Only you, Holy Spirit, can make this truth real to the hearts of your people. And so I plead with you, come and do your mighty work, we ask it. In Jesus' name.